Okay, let's, uh, let's begin this evening. What I want to speak to you, what I'm going to get round to speaking to you about, is what is known as four fundamental distortions of perception. But before I get to that, I want to have a little bit of a preamble about what, what this path is about, what the Buddha's teaching was about, to kind of set the scene for what we're doing. As you well know, I mean, it's partly the reason why you're here, that MBCT, MBSR, you know, its origins, um, psychologically and sometimes, you know, and particularly practically, lie in this early Buddhist tradition. In many ways, as I've often said in this room before, that the Buddha is probably the first psychologist. He's certainly the first person who starts talking about the nature of the mind. Uh, If he's not doing psychology in the way that contemporary psychologists do it, certainly in a cognitive way, he's certainly doing it in a way that would probably have resonated with somebody like William James. He's doing it in an introspective way, beginning to look at the nature of the mind introspectively and to make conclusions and draw conclusions, basically, about human behaviour. However, this character who we call the Buddha, um, and I say call the Buddha because actually that term, he's very rarely called it in the actual early text itself, this person, the person who we call the Buddha. These days I actually prefer, prefer to call him just Mr. Gotama um, because that was his name. Um, so good old Mr. Gotama, when he was walking around India two and a half thousand years ago, well, what was he up to? Well, he wasn't doing this psychology um, in the sense of trying to do it out of intellectual curiosity. He's doing it for an extremely practical purpose. Um, I think we should never forget this. He's a very practical thinker. He's somebody who's trying to get people to think about their lives and how they lead their lives and how they can alter their course of their lives from really unskillful unwholesome ways of being into a movement which is much, much more wholesome, um, much more what I call life-enhancing. This is what the Buddha is doing. He's doing it in a very, very practical way. He calls this um, basic project, of which he himself has achieved it, he calls it awakening, a process of waking up. Many, many years ago um, in this area, in Dartington, there was a conference called the Psychology of Awakening, um, which was actually basically a Buddhist conference. Um, But I think this is very much at the heart, this phrase, a psychology of awakening, at the heart of this teaching. It's awakening to something which I think has deep resonances, I know, for many of you who are committed to helping people within caring professions, which is to help people with their distress with their suffering, with their pains, with their anguish, with their dissatisfactions. You know, I let those words settle where it feels right for you at this moment. But it's certainly, this is what the Buddha's teaching was about. It was waking up to the origins and the causes of that distress. He believed and saw very clearly that distress and the kind of psychological disturbances that many of us suffer from, and many of your clients will suffer from, a lot of it was, well, let's put it this way, that we were implicated in the production of it, that it didn't just come about. Uh, We were actually implicated in producing um, some of our forms of distress that we have. Not all, by any means, and this is not the purpose of this, to try and brush things away and say, well, actually, it's all your fault. No, we have ways of dealing with things which are often extremely unskillful. We have ways of seeing things which are very, very unhelpful and unskillful and often result in unwholesome action. So the Buddha's basic strategy was one to encourage people to wake up. Now, I'm using this term deliberately because this is the term that most of you will know under the guise of another term, which is the term enlightenment. Um, I don't think that's... Well, it certainly doesn't speak to me, let's put it that way, the term enlightenment, where the term waking up certainly speaks to myself. 
Um, it's a project I can engage in. Uh, enlightenment um, always seems to me something anchored in the 18th century um, and goes on into the 19th century as a project within the West. It's certainly not what the Buddha is engaged in. The Buddha is engaged in encouraging us to wake up and to wake up to what he calls the way things really are. Notice the phrasing of that. Um, The phrase in the original language is yata butang, which actually means the way they actually are, not the way I would like them to be. There's a big difference, isn't there? between the fantasies that we can engage in about how we would like things to be and the very hard edge of reality which erupts into our life and says, actually, that's not the way it is at all. That's not the way things are. And so his project of waking up is really quite simple. It's to wake up to the way things actually are to cease our daydreaming, to cease our fantasies, to cease our kind of mismatch between what we believe and what we think and the way they actually are. So fundamental to this is correct perception, correct perception of things. But before I get to that, I just want to speak about this sense of human distress that the Buddha speaks about. Now, One of the things I'm very kind of hot on, and I think probably all are sitting up here at the front, is actually there is no direct translation for something that we generally translate as suffering. The actual term dukkha, which is this term within one of the ancient Indian languages, this language of Pali, which I think I mentioned very briefly last night, um, has no real direct one-to-one translation. In it, because it's a spectrum word. It means many, many things. It means everything from minor irritation to tragedy in your life. And if you can think of the vast gamut of things that are, in a sense, in between those two terms, between the minor irritations of life, the minor dissatisfactions, to the sense of losing perhaps a dear one, a loved one in your life, then it covers the whole spectrum of things between that. And this is the reason why when we pin it down to one term and say it's suffering, uh, then it doesn't really do it justice. In fact, I would often say to a group like yourselves, you know, if I actually said to you at this moment in time, you are, you know, it's a bit like a you know, sort of character on television, you're all suffering. You, know, you might say, well, no, I'm kind of slightly irritated. Um, you know, I'm a bit bored, I'm a bit tired, it's hot, too hot, too cold, um, the seat I'm sitting on isn't comfortable enough, you know, it can be all of these things. But suffering in this sense would be at the tragic end of the spectrum. It wouldn't be, at the, spec- it wouldn't be the end of the spectrum where we are suffering the minor dissatisfactions, the minor dislikes, um, the minor irritations, which are part and parcel, seemingly of the background of everyday life. The dissatisfactions that we suffer from, using the word suffer here, suffer from, are afflicted with, are almost part of the warp and woof of life as we experience it. Have you ever noticed how even when you get the thing you want, it's not quite right? Have you ever noticed that? Or the satisfaction with it lasts for a very small period of time before something else is calling you, um, something else that you want. And so this can be dukkha. And in a way of testing out this sense of dukkha, um, in the way that I'm trying to explain it to you, it can be the idea, for example, that if there is anything at this moment in time you would like to be different right now, right here, if there's anything you want to be different, that is dukkha. Now that might just be sitting on a chair when you're sitting on the floor, wanting it to be a little bit warmer or a little bit cooler or more air or for me to shut up. (laughs) It might even be that. But if there's anything that you want changed at this moment in time, that is dukkha. Yeah, This was ubiquitous. It was all-pervasive. 
as far as the Buddha was concerned. In other words, the human condition was one where human beings basically are in constant states of irritation and dissatisfaction. Even when you're, in a sense, engaging with something which is producing pleasure, that pleasure will arise, it will pass away, and it will change, and you will find yourself in another state, often not as fortunate as the one you were in. If I was putting it even more strongly, the, the world actually is incapable of satisfying you. This was the kind of position that the Buddha um, was talking about. Now, we can either make this worse, or we can somehow start to settle forms of dukkha that we engage in, and actually we're being produced by ourselves, and we can deal with them. We can move from unrealistic demands about the world in which we live And I'll use that phrase again, unrealistic demands, because that is not the way the world is, into a realism which is actually based on really seeing how things are. That was the encouragement. That was the the gauntlet in some senses that the Buddha was throwing down in order to stimulate those who were his followers two and a half thousand years ago. But also I think this is why it's so prescient in this world that he's throwing down that gauntlet to each and every one of us. Do we have the capacity to wake up to see things as they actually are as opposed to living the fantasies of how we would like them to be? This is the big one. So (laughs) in a way I'm starting right here at the beginning Right here at the beginning, I think of the kind of areas in which we often encounter people. If you're in, if you're in caring professions of any sort, you're encountering them with their problems, with their difficulties, with their dissatisfactions. It can be from the psychotherapeutic relationship um, to the mental health sphere, where we're dealing with a, with a vast spectrum of different, what I call, mental agitation. Here, yeah, A vast spectrum of mental agitation. Uh, but let's not exclude ourselves from that spectrum of mental agitation. Um, again, something I've often said in this room, but I'll repeat here because I think it's so important, is a lot of this agitation is, is actually driven by a need to repeat and to repeat compulsively. And I think from the Buddha's perspective, it's not a term he would ever use, it was not even round in his day, um, actually, everybody, probably in this room, everybody, every human being is on the spectrum of OCD, of obsessive compulsive disorder, having it to greater or lesser extents. Yeah. Everybody's on that spectrum in some way because of this compulsion to repeat. What we repeat again and again are habits of body, speech, and mind. You know, those habits of body, speech, and mind often, of course, driven by those habits of mind. Um, Christina mentioned them in the instructions this morning, breathing in and calming the formations. Breathing out and calming the formations. This word formations is just a, a technical term for something we could probably translate much more as habit. Habits of mind. Habits of body. Habits of speech. In a retreat of this sort, we get to encounter them, you know, often very directly, because the structures of a retreat themselves help to bring us face-to-face with habitual responses, that habitual reactiveness of wanting to verbalize something or wanting your own structures that make you feel safe, comfortable, and secure for them to be in place, you know. There's a certain degree, I think, of vulnerability about ever coming on a retreat because you're suddenly having a lot of those structures taken away from you. I think it was Chris last night who mentioned the compulsion to read. This is a compulsion that we have. It's a way of kind of filling up our minds, filling up our space. Uh, The compulsion to have certain foods and the the way we want things to be for ourselves adding to a sense of security, often even, dare I say it, identity. 
um, through these habits and structures that we like to inhabit. All of this is challenged. All of this is challenged both by the practice and by the teaching of the Buddha where he's trying to bring us face to face with our habitual reactiveness. The movement is one, effectively, away from reaction. And I think you see this very particularly in the structure and the way we work through the eight-week program in MBCT and MBSR, a movement away from reaction to response, from reaction to action. This is the liberating element, if you like, within even these eight-week classes um, that we speak of. We're helping, in a sense, encouraging people to engage in their own forms of liberation, liberating themselves via a close examination through the structure of the protocol, liberating themselves from certain patterns which are difficult to live. They can actually be very destructive to people's life patterns. In a greater sense, making this connection between what is going on in those protocols and what is going on in the tradition and the psychology behind the tradition, what we're actually ultimately trying to do in the tradition is liberate ourselves from all of those habit patterns. To liberate ourselves from all of the compulsions that we normally inhabit and are driven by. This is what is at the heart of this. At the heart of it as well is something I don't think that comes easy in the West, and I know we're going to say a lot more about this, so I'm not going to preempt it, but I just want to mention it because it's already been mentioned. At the heart of this is kindness, and the heart of it is friendliness. Something I don't think that comes easy in the Western world. It's certainly um, what we have is a highly developed sense of the inner critic in the Western world. This may be through the enculturation of years and years, or centuries and centuries of the internalization of 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 a voice which is the critical voice. Without being romantic about the East, I don't see it so much in the Eastern world. But it's certainly very present in this Western world. However, to come to... That's the preamble, by the way. Uh, But to come to the main element of what I want to talk about tonight, I want to talk about something which the Buddha speaks of, and the, the, the Pali word is a lovely word, actually. It's the word vipalasa. Yeah. The word means a distortion of perception. Yeah. And this is what the Buddha says, very short, very succinct, and I'll try and explain what he's talking about here. Is There are four distortions of perception. Distortions of thought, distortions of view. These are sensing no change in the changing, sensing pleasure in what is painful, assuming self where there is not self, and finally sensing the unlovely as being lovely. These are what the Buddha considers to be distortions of perception, Mind, or thought, chitta, and views, ditti, in the original languages. This is what we're projecting onto the world. In other words, let's put it really simply, this is part of our problem. (laughs) Part of the problem is that we're doing this. We're looking for, if you like, changelessness in what is changing. Something to have stasis which is actually transitory. Something, for example, to be pleasurable, ultimately pleasurable, where in fact it's characterized much more as being dukkha. Now I'm going to go into these, but before I do that, I just want to say a little tiny word, just a little phrase about this word vipalasa. It's actually a really interesting word in the original language, in Pali. The word is derived from, you break it up, vipalasa. Asa is the verb. 
form of this. Literally what it means is to take up, twist around and throw back down. Hear that again. This is what we're doing. It's a verb form. We're taking something up, turning it around and throwing it back down again. So this is why we're sensing or trying to perceive that which is unchanging in change. Why we're trying to perceive that which is ultimately dukkha as being pleasurable. Trying to instigate a self into that where there actually is no room for self. is actually not self. And taking up all kinds of things which are actually not terribly pleasant, and this is in a sense what we mean here, which are actually not very beautiful, and trying to see them as being lovely. And I can think of all kinds of forms of behaviour where people do this, picking up that which they think is going to ingratiate themselves with others um, because of the kind of shared experience here as well, and see this as being a good form of behaviour. So to begin at the beginning, to go to the first of these, sensing change in the change, and not sensing change, or trying to see the changeless in that which is changing. I don't think it takes a great mind to discern the fact that you know, what we live in is a changing world. You know, things are changing all the time. This is not a new thought, it's not even a Buddhist thought. In fact, most of this stuff I wouldn't even consider to be Buddhist. It's just that this tradition happens to hold this material and, and have structured it in such a way that it's very clear. What we're talking about, of course, is investigations that we can engage in. And when we start to investigate the world in even a fairly superficial way, intellectually, particularly, we can see the world is changing. We look around us, and we see changing societies, changing economic situations, uh, a changing world, literally, you know, uh, the world itself, the tectonic plates of the world are shifting, the Himalaya continue to rise every year uh, by a certain amount, Um, the natural world isn't under our control, I think we often quite kind of dramatically see this um, when some disaster, natural disaster happens. That this world isn't under our control. It's a changing world we live in. We ourselves are changing. We're aging, all of us. Even at this moment, we're all aging. Um, Our partners, our loved ones are ageing too. Now, without waiting to make you too miserable at this stage, I could make you really miserable tonight, but I'm going to kind of try to refrain from this. I usually leave the job of cheering everybody else up to Christina and Chris. (laughs) But to to kind of get to the realism of this, this is is what we inhabit. This is what we, we live in. We live in this world of change. And I often say it doesn't take a great mind to begin to perceive that (coughs) intellectually and I do use that word deliberately it's an intellectual comprehension it's a comprehension with our minds that things are changing what it often doesn't touch is as emotionally in fact when we start to say this I mean I think this would have probably been as true two and a half thousand years ago when the Buddha was first saying it as it often is to people who are sitting here in Gaia House and other retreat centres, when they first hear this sense of, actually, everything is changing. It often seems like quite a terrifying prospect. Change is something which is not under our control by its very nature. Sometimes we can manipulate it, utilise it, see it having benefits for ourselves, and it becomes less threatening. You know, when that boss, when the boss gives us a raise, you know that's change working for you. When the headache goes, wow, that's really good change. 
However, when you're feeling okay and the headache comes on board, yeah, not so good. When you go in and your boss tells you you've got to take a cut in salary because of the economic situation, not so good. Yeah. So we live in, in a sense, a world of change which is a change which we either embrace because it, in a sense, works for us, or a change which is seen as threatening. And when we see it as threatening, is that in a way which we can't embrace because it doesn't give us what we want? In fact, more often than not, it takes away something that we wanted. We wanted to hold on to, for whatever reason. So we live in in a sort of... We live in a sort of dichotomous relationship to the world of change. But when we start to just narrow it down to the world of change in a sense which is not to our benefit, then we actually fundamentally start to push it away. We actually don't want to know about it a lot of the time. So when we start to look at change, what we're starting to look at is our relationship with it. We're starting to look at this fundamental relationship that we have with the changing phenomena of our world. That we don't take it on board, and I'm not saying intellectually, because I think intellectually it's not a great, it's not a great uh, sort of difficult conundrum to try and get our heads around. That all things are changing. That we don't actually take it on board on an emotional, embodied level. I think is very much indicated by the fact of how resistant we are to it. How we don't want to know about it. How we push it away. In fact, we'll go on the opposite tack. And this is what is indicated in here. We look for the unchanging in change. Many religious traditions... Um, the majority of religious traditions over the centuries, and philosophies, let's not, let's not exempt them either, uh, have always looked for the real in that which doesn't change. Yeah. In order to perform that feat of claiming something is real and not changing, they can never put it in this world. They can never put it here and now, because everything that we encounter is changing. The Greeks had a word for this. They called it phenomena. Phenomena was a pejorative term. Phenomena was actually derogatory. Anything that was phenomena wasn't real. Only the unchanging, because phenomena changed. Only that which was real was the thing that didn't change. Now, it's not too great a leap, I think, to see how that then gets translated in terms of metaphysical realities that are somehow outside of this world. We often look at another and make a demand on others, whether they be close to us and sometimes not close to us, but particularly on those close to us is, in a sense, a demand that's not necessarily there consciously, as often there is unconsciously, which is don't change on me. Yeah. Don't change. I want you to be the same. I want me to be the same. And I hope this strikes you as completely unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> this is not the way people are. We're all changing. Yeah. Uh, we change intellectually. We change you know, physically. Um, we, we change in all so many ways. Yet there is often that demand, both to ourselves and to others, to not change. To see, in fact, or to try and hold on to something which is changeless within the changing. And actually, I'll let you into a little secret. There isn't any such thing. Actually, it's not a big secret. There is no such thing that we can grasp after or hold on to which isn't changing. Human existence, looking for the changes within the changing, can be characterized by the search for security. The search for security is often predicated on 
the idea of something changeless. And we seek to ground ourselves in security when there is no ultimate security. Many Buddhist teachers, certainly ones I've studied with throughout the years, talk about the wisdom of insecurity. Trying to live in this world, knowing it is insecure, knowing it is a changing place, and living in such a way that it doesn't disturb us. That we don't create, actually in the next term, in a way, we don't create dukkha out of change. So there's an invitation here to start to embrace the change which is our life. There's a completely different way of looking at this, of actually finding comfort and ease within the changing as opposed to the resistance to it, which nearly always, even when we resist it seemingly successfully for quite a while, then that change is going to erupt into our lives at some point. Often it erupts in the forms of sickness, illness, you know, both to ourselves and those to who we care about. It erupts in a form which disrupts the security that we think we have in life. Now, to put it quite crudely, the Buddha is basically saying, get real about this. This is the nature of the world. This is the nature of our lives, that they're continuously, absolutely, pervasively embedded in change. And yet we seek, we pick up that which is changing, and we try to look for something which is unchanging within it. It's like trying to hold on to water like trying to build a house which is secure on shifting sand. We can never do it. So this is one of the fundamental distortions of perception, one of the fundamental distortions of thought, and ultimately of how we begin to view the world. We view it with an eye that's often looking for that which is secure. Security is often, again, predicated on the idea of discovering that which we can rest ourselves on, ground ourselves on, which is not going to change. Now, the Buddha is saying, actually, the opposite is the case. We need to safely, in a sense, ground ourselves within that which is the way the world is. As long as we have a mismatch between how we would like it to be, and actually that's what we're talking about fundamentally here as the major distortion of perception, how we would like it to be. We would like it to be much more secure, much less changeless. Something we can ground ourselves in, something we can hold on to, something we can feel is absolutely certain and secure for us. And yet the world ultimately does not give that to you. That's why it cannot provide us with the satisfactions that we often look for within it. You know, the change is written into everything we do, into the ways that we live. And it's not under our control. Yeah. So here's another big learning that has to take place within this, which in a sense is opening ourselves up to a certain degree of impotence. There are certain things that I'm not saying across the board because there are certain things that we can do. There are certain changes that we can help to direct. But ultimately, the big ones, we often are powerless to direct them in any other way than the way that they unfold for us. I came across a great quotation, which I'm very fond of. Um, I wish I had coined it myself, which went very simply like this. Relax, nothing is under control. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it's about, learning in a sense to take our stance within the changing. 
Then we come to sensing pleasure in that which is painful. That sounds very bizarre, if not perverse, doesn't it? Yeah. That which is painful. The word that's being translated here again is the word dukkha. The Buddha speaks of many forms of dukkha here. And I just quickly run through them for you. Because there's one, he's saying there's something we can do about, do something about, and there are others which we can't. The first one is known as dukkha dukkha. <laughs> Literally the pain of pain, yeah, if you translate it. Trips off the tongue nicely, doesn't it? Dukkha dukkha. Yeah. So the pain of pain, that's all the physical sufferings that we are going to encounter in our lives. Um, it's often the tragedies as well, the loss of loved ones. Yeah. The things that, the pains in our lives, the ageing, the sickness, and ultimately death, which none of us will escape. These are not under our control. They're nothing, they're something that none of us can do anything about whatsoever, other than come into a different relation with them. The Buddha himself, um, in the early texts, and it's, you know, I always encourage people to read them if they're ever interested in these, in the early texts, the Buddha himself is not exempt. You know, there's one thing, clear thing, he's not sort of a supernatural being um, in these early texts. No matter what he becomes in, in later forms of Buddhism, in the early texts, he's very much flesh and blood. Um, he, gets, he, he does a lot of walking, uh, he teaches for 45 years, um, a couple of years ago I took a group around India showing them the various sites and one of the things that struck me on going around again after many, many years was just the enormous distances he walked. Huge distances over the area of northeast India. So, as a consequence of that, he gets ill. Yeah. That's never played down in the texts at all. It's never played down. Towards the end of his life, he even jokes about his decrepitude. He says, you know, the Buddha is just... He said, this person, you know, who, who basically we call the Buddha, he said, this person is just like an old cart. He's only kept going by being strapped up every morning. Yeah. Um, he, he basically, you know, for example, even um, chastises one of his close disciples. Um, because when he's dying, um, his close disciple Ananda, who's actually his cousin, is basically leaning on a, on a doorpost, wailing um, about what's happening. And the Buddha goes something like, actually, have you ever listened to anything I've said? <laughs> yeah. So he's actually, he's flesh and blood, and he dies. You know? So... This character two and a half thousand years ago, who's, some, who's behind these teachings, and I think he's behind, in a way, the impetus in a sense of what becomes the mindfulness movement as we experience it today, this person didn't escape this stuff. Yeah? He didn't escape it, just like we won't escape it either. So there's nothing we can do about this. There's a realism actually about owning up to this. Owning up to the, you know, the... The aging, the sickness, and the death. In fact, some of you might have seen it, if you ever know, there's Buddhist American Buddhist magazine called Tricycle. Um, quite a number of years ago, they had a spoof movie poster in it, which said, you know, like how they're having the movies, you know, coming to you soon, old age, sickness, death. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think, a way of making it quite clear that none of us are going to avoid it. This is Dukkha Dukkha. We don't avoid it. Then there's a sense, something that you know, sort of resonates with what I've already spoken about, which is the change. There is what's called Viparanama Dukkha, the Dukkha of things changing. Yeah. An awful lot of our human distress is about change, isn't it? You know, our own distress. If you actually reflect on it, if our own distress is often about things changing. Yeah. I think you see this, you know, certainly experience it. The older you get, the more nostalgic you become for times when the things were different to the way they are now. 
You know, we often reflect on the minor changes that have occurred in our lives, you know, how things could have been perhaps different, how we've got to the position where we are now. The changes, the changes. We seem to inhabit the changes continuously. And then, of course, all the changes in the world, and I don't want to go revisit this because I've you know, obviously talked about this quite a lot so far, all the changes in the world that we see, probably most of which we have some doubts about, if not feel actually threatened by and actually experience them as quite painful, the changes. And then there's the changes in our own circumstances, our work environments, all the things I'm sure that are familiar to you. You know, the way you see your jobs change, the way you see your work environments change here relationships with people who you work with these change your own personal relationships change yeah. huge part of it so change again as I said before is if, you, if there's any contract change is written into it yeah. directly yeah. there's no exemption clause either <laughs> this is another direct form of dukkha that we experience the dukkha of change. Then finally, there's one other form of dukkha that the Buddha speaks about, which is what he calls sankhara or sankhata dukkha, which is the dukkha of formations. The dukkha of construction is probably a better way of putting it. That which we're constructing. Now we inhabit uh, a world where we're constructing continuously. We construct stories continuously. In fact, these distortions of perception in the terms of the view part of it are constructions we place on things. I construct changelessness within a world that's changing. I construct looking for pleasure within that which is actually ultimately going to result in pain. Certainly in dissatisfaction here. So this construction, this sankhata dukkha, is actually the part that the dukkha that the Buddha is really concerned about. This is the part of the dukkha that we can do something about. Looked at it as most basic, this form of dukkha is the dukkha that we inflict on ourselves. Many of you will probably heard it. It's often used even in MBCT training and MBSR training of the um, image of the two arrows, the two darts. There's the first dart which we're hit by, which is the pain, the suffering that we get hit by. And that can be of the first two forms. The dukkha dukkha, I get sick, I lose somebody I love, it can be the dukkha of change. Um, my job situation changes so much. You know, my home relationships are changing and you know, not as good as they used to be. You know, this is what's happening. This is the first arrow. This is the first dart that hits you. Then there is the construction that we place around things. What we do to it. How we magnify it. How we put it under a lens magnifying it out of proportion to the way it often is. Placing construals on it that it doesn't actually possess. So we're placing it under this magnifying glass and constructing often narratives and stories that we inhabit. So, going back to the analogy of the darts, the arrows... We get hit by the first one, and then we willfully shove in another. We actually push it into ourselves. We can see this with the pains in our lives. We often revisit them in some ways, um, just to see how painful they are. It's a bit like having a cavity in a tooth. You you keep sticking your tongue in it to just see if it really is that painful. Often this is what we do with life. We take certain areas and we keep probing it, pushing it. Seeing how painful it is. Often desiring that which is not going to be that painful. So therefore what do we look for? We look for pleasure. 
Pleasure will seem to take us out of the painful. The unfortunate thing is often about our pleasure-seeking, and the Buddha doesn't say it's wrong, he just says it doesn't give us what we want. That this pleasure-seeking that we engage in as a way of overcoming the pains of life, rather than decrease ultimately the dissatisfaction that we experience, actually lead to its inflammation. It's like pouring petrol on a fire already. You think, or we think, and I'm not saying here cognitively, this is almost reflexively, we try to deal with the pains of life by giving ourselves the good things, the better things, the materials, the goodies of life. Our culture, Western culture, is a very very materialistic culture. Actually, I don't believe many Eastern cultures are not materialistic now either. Certainly Indian culture is extremely materialistic uh, in what it wants, you know, certainly in the upper branches of it. So in this searching for something, and what you know, often is at the heart of what we're searching for, is some peace, some tranquility. Dare I even, might, dare I even use the word happiness? Yeah. means many things to many people, so I don't tend to use it that much. But often this is what people would say, will admit that they're searching for, some degree of happiness. That happiness can often be equated with easefulness and contentment in life. And so when we're looking for that which is actually in this distorted way, we're looking for that which is actually what we think is going to be pleasurable within what is ultimately going to cause more pain, where you can see wherein the problem lies. And I think materialism is a very, very good example of this. So we crave pleasures, we crave ways of being which are not afflicted by the pain of day-to-day existence, and we do so in such a way that we go out and desperately seek for things which are going to make us happy. Unfortunately, of course, they don't. Um, And we get caught in 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 a treadmill of having to keep on searching for something. It's like looking for an object where you can finally say to yourself, and I'm just really speaking about here, it could be knowledge, it could be some kind of psychological understanding, it might be anything that you say, actually, if I had this, I could rest, I could be peaceful, I could settle here. And of course what happens is you get whatever your object might be, And then all you see is an infinitude of things stretching out ahead of you, which you've got to have. And so it's on to the next object. As I said, be it an object of knowledge, be it a material object, whatever it might be. Materialism materialism itself is not wrong. In fact, it's completely comprehensible from the Buddhist perspective. It's a way of trying to solve the pain and the difficulty of ordinary life. It doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't make any of us bad people. It doesn't make us, you know, ultimately um, wrong. It just means it's misguided what happens. The Buddha gives a very striking analogy in one of the texts. He gives an analogy of a dog sitting outside of a butcher's shop. And the dog is thrown a bone. He said, which is merely smeared with blood. has no flesh on the bone at all. And what the dog does is he chews it again and again and again and again, trying to find some nutrition. And I think it's a wonderful analogy often for the human condition. What we do, and here's the repetition again, coming back in. What we do is we do the same things again and again and again in the sheer disbelief that they're not giving us what we want. Yeah, the kind of form is, I'll just try it one more time. <laughs> just see if it works this time. <laughs> you know? So the, the desperate hedonistic treadmill that we're on often 
Yeah, and I'm obviously talking in generalizations here, but I'm sure we can see this often within ourselves and often within the people we meet. The hedonistic treadmill that often we're on is one that we, unless we step off the wheel, we're going to keep on going with it. You know, we are the, the mouse caught on that treadmill, going round and round and round. All the mouse has got to do is get off. And what the Buddha is trying to encourage us to do is get off that treadmill. So we're often misguided. We're often making demands on aspects of the world, thinking that it's going to bring us what we want, happiness, contentment, fulfillment, pleasure. And what it will do is actually produce a greater sense of dissatisfaction. And here I'm using the most fundamental sense of dukkha, a sense of dissatisfaction about the way things are for you. So you get to see, again, what the Buddha is actually trying to encourage us to do is have some clarity in our perceptions where we see things. We know if we go after the pleasurable object, it will not give us some kind of ultimate fulfillment. And that's fine. This is very much in line with knowing mindfully. Let's, I haven't introduced this word yet into this talk at all. But knowing mindfully and with full awareness what kind of things can come out of the activities we're engaging in. Knowing mindfully that if I'm in pleasure, that it will reach a certain point and then it will decline. It's, uh, I think I described to a group here recently, it's like the pop song. You know, The pop song is one usually here again and again and again and again. It's a kind of de- law of declining averages of pleasure, <laughs> the more you hear it. Yeah. And that's often what happens with this. We begin to see very clearly where it's going to go and therefore perhaps can start to release ourselves from the compulsions to do some of this stuff to produce something actually ultimately doesn't produce. You know, looking for something within the materialistic search, just to use one example, that it cannot ever, ever produce. I'm only going to touch very briefly because we're running out of time for these last two elements. These are the two ones I really wanted, the first two uh, the two I really wanted to um, explore with you because I think in my second talk later on in the week I'll explore this other one in a lot more detail with you, is you know, seeing self where there is not self. This is strange. What we get in the Buddha's thought is the idea and the sense of when we begin to look within ourselves, we do not find something fixed. We often look for fixity. We look for fixity. We look for selves. You know, again, this is part of our searching for certainty. You know, selves actually is more, let's make it into a verb form, are more forms of selfing. Yeah? They are processes. You, I... Everybody in this room is selfing in some way. That selfing will manifest in different ways according to the conditions and our education, our upbringing, our backgrounds, the kind of um, facticity of our lives. All of these come to bear on how we manifest in this world, but it's not fixed. The only time you're ever fixed, by the way, is when you're dead. However, we can do this within life. We can try and kill ourselves off within life. And we have wonderful phrases, um, I think, in ordinary English where we do this. That's the way I am. That means I can't possibly change, which you are anyway. (laughs) These ways of trying to sum ourselves up and saying, you you know, the way we try to pigeonhole others. I mean, have you ever felt the violence being done to you when somebody's trying to pigeonhole you? When they're saying, you're that sort of person, aren't you? You You're calm, or you're an agitated sort of person. You feel, ooh, (laughs) something slightly more than that. Um, So what we're talking about here is often looking for something fixed. As I say, I'll explore this in a lot more detail. Looking for something fixed in something which is actually, again, changing here. So the self is a process. The self is not a thing. Yet we look to 
selves. Again, it's, it's another spin-off of looking for certainty, looking for predictability, looking for security. I want to know who you are so I can hold on to my idea of you until, of course, the change becomes so great that actually you don't quite match up to my image that I hold of you any longer. So we're often looking for the certainty of a self. We're often projecting it into forms of change. Now, it seems strange that we will look for self, even within objects. Really what it means is we look for essences. Looking for something, again, which is the essential nature of whatever that is. We can look for beauty and say that's essentially beautiful. Where in fact it isn't. All it is, of course, is a product of society, product of cultures. You know, when we look, for example, in an art gallery, we'll see many, many different versions of beauty coming from different cultural eras. You know, from abstract impressionism to going right back to representational art, which gives a very fixed idea of what the beautiful is. Yeah. Uh, I tend to disagree with Keats on this one. A thing of beauty is something forever. It isn't. It's usually a passing cultural fad <laughs> here. That's another way of looking for self in, in things which are actually changing. Sensing the lovely in the unlovely. I can tend to think here, and I'm only going to touch on this briefly because just to finish off this talk, the sensing the lovely in the unlovely is often seeing, for example, within some of our forms of media, things like cinema, beauty and violence. Yeah. Seeing it as something wonderful. Seeing, um, sensing beauty in disagreement, seeing it there in disputation, seeing it there in arguments that we have with the world, holding on to fixed ideas of the beautiful, holding on to a fixed idea of what the beautiful is, both for ourselves and for others. There are many, many ways, and perhaps you know, I'll pick up on a tiny bit of this later on in the week, because I think these go together with aspects of selfing and ways that we reinforce the self as well. So these, very briefly, and I've covered two in detail and two very, very sketchily, are the distortions of perception. The whole point about mindfulness in the Buddhist context and the mindful way of life is to correct these distortions of perception to see that which is changing as change, to see that which is dukkha as dukkha, to see that which is not self as being, not self, and finally to see that which is unlovely as being unlovely, not trying to dress it up in some conceptual formulation which sees it and projects it as being beautiful here. The mindful life is there to correct that, These are the four fundamental dimensions which in some senses we're constantly, constantly projecting onto the world. The opposites of what I've just said. So, mindfulness, in its most basic sense, is there to help us to see things as they really are. To disrupt, to prick the fantasies that we engage in. Just finally, we believe in our thought processes. We believe in what they're telling us. This is something I'm sure is all familiar to you um, within uh, the MBCT context, MBSR context. And we have the little phrase that many of you will know, thoughts are not facts here. These are forms of thought. They're forms of, because thought doesn't remain as thought, it is a perception, and they're also views as well, which we hold. But above all, if I was encapsulating all three here, thought, perception, views, they are narrative structures in which we hold the world in place in a very shaky way. Our minds are telling us it's true. 
Just to finish off, there's a wonderful book which some of you might know called The Passion by Jeanette Winterson, a feminist novelist. And there's a wonderful wonderful story. It's a magical realist novel, if you know what those are, where wonderful things happen, all sorts of strange things happen, like a a woman who has um, webbing between her toes and can walk on water. And, that, and there's one refrain, I think, that's almost ought to be very indicative, ought to be basically allied to the way that we think about our thought process that runs through this book. With all these weird things happen, there's this little refrain that goes, trust me, I'm telling you stories. That's what our minds are doing. And mindfulness is a corrective to the trust me, I'm telling you stories. Okay, I'll finish there. It went on a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But thank you for your attention, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.